Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, our topic is your equine law questions answered. If you've owned horses long enough, you've probably encountered some kind of sales, breeding, boarding, or training contract, or signed a liability release. While horses bring us a lot of joy, owning them also involves risk, and many of our equine-related activities include some sort of business transaction. To help navigate the legal aspects of horse ownerships and answer your equine law questions, we're joined tonight by attorney Rachel Cosmo-McCart of Equine Legal Solutions. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, let's start out and have uh, you tell everyone a little bit about your experience and how you got into equine law. Yeah, I've, let's see. I've been a practicing lawyer for uh, 21 years now, which seems hard to believe. <laughs> and uh, in my former life, I was a securities lawyer and uh, worked in-house at Intel Corporation. And folks that knew I had horses uh, and knew I was a lawyer would ask me to draft contracts and you know, look at things for them. And when it got to be uh, people that I didn't personally know anymore, my husband pointed out that maybe that's something I should charge for. <laughs> and, uh, and one thing led to another. And, and here we are over a decade later. And, uh, you know, I have my own equine law practice. And I practice in four states, California, New York, Washington, and Oregon. Okay. And so since you, let's give everyone the ca the caveat for tonight. So they're listening live, we're answering their questions, but it's true that you can't actually give them legal advice, correct? That's true, that, uh, that I can't comment on the laws of any state where I'm not licensed to practice, and I can only give some general guidance. I can't, uh, I can't answer questions about specific legal situations. Okay, so as we're addressing people's questions, if they need more information, uh, where would you advise them to find uh, information that will help them specifically or address their specific situations in their specific states? Well, they can certainly go to my firm's website, which is equinelegalsolutions.com. And uh, if they live in or have a matter that concerns one of the states where I'm licensed to practice, uh, they can sign up on the website for a consultation. And uh, if they don't, they will find a directory on our website of attorneys who practice equine law in other states and other countries. Okay. So uh, I want to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Live format before we get started with our questions. Uh, we're going to begin with questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you would like to ask us live or would like a clarification on one of Rachel's responses, you can enter that in the chat window in front of you if you're listening online. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible over the next hour. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Rachel, our first question is from Rebecca in Ontario, Canada. And she wants to know what's the best way to get involved in the legal aspect of the equine industry? And we actually received several questions uh, along those lines. How do you get specialized in equine law? Well, as, as you gathered from the introduction, for me, the development of an equine law practice was an accident. <laughs> if one were to go about it in a more systematic way, you know, I, I would say, you know, my practice is devoted to probably, oh, I would say almost 90% litigation. And most of that is horse sale fraud litigation. 
i.e. somebody sold or bought a horse that had something wrong with it that either was or wasn't disclosed. And uh, so I would say that in order to get started with an equine law practice, becoming a well-rounded attorney with an emphasis, I think, on litigation, but also a strong background in contracts would be a good choice. And I think to get that kind of hands-on, you can go to the courtroom yourself kind of experience, you're probably better off at a smaller firm where you're going to have more responsibility quicker. So my understanding is that you do have in in regular uh, business law, you have your litigators and you have your contract lawyers and your business lawyers. So do you find that the equine lawyers are a little bit of all of that then since they are dealing with contracts and sales and then also litigating issues that come up uh, in lawsuits? Well, I think that's a really good question that certainly I know some other practitioners who only do transactional work. And then, you know, there are other practitioners like me who do, you know, a good proportion of their practices litigation. So, you know, I think it can be done either way, but most of the inquiries that we get at Equine Legal Solutions are about litigation matters or potential litigation matters. I, I would say maybe 80% of our inquiries are about disputes. And the other 20% are about, you know, transactional and corporate formation kinds of things. So. Okay. So our next question is from Diane in Michigan. And she says, if an owner rides their horse off the property where it is boarded, is the property owner liable for anything that might happen to that horse or rider or anyone else when that horse and rider are off their property? So that's a really good question, Diane that uh, let's say you're operating a boarding facility and you have some trails adjacent to your property that aren't actually on your property and your boarders go and ride on those trails, are you liable for anything that your boarders or your customers do or fail to do that they should have done? And the answer is maybe, and I realize that's a complete lawyer answer, but, uh, but in order to have actual liability for something, the boarding stable property owner would have had to do something wrong. So they would have had to, say, encourage their boarders to trespass on someone else's property when they knew they didn't have permission. You know, it's hard to come up with a scenario, you know, sort of on the fly here where a property owner might be liable, but they would have to have some sort of responsibility to a third party that they didn't fulfill or they would have to have done something affirmatively bad to a third party that involved the border being off their property. So I think the chances are relatively small, but I think, you know, that's one of the many reasons why if you are running a boarding facility, even if you only have one border, you want to have commercial liability insurance because even if you don't have any actual liability for something, that might not stop somebody from suing you. And part of the beauty of commercial liability insurance is that they will provide a defense for you. So, you know, the typical, you know, legal defense, you know, may, might run 15 grand a month and last for over a year. And that can bankrupt most folks pretty quickly. Our next question is from Mila in Montana, and she says she's interested in learning about liability issues for arena owners who let neighbors and friends use their facilities. Mila, that's a really good question. So I would say that if you are not running a commercial facility, 
the number one thing that you need to do is not charge anyone to use your arena, even if it's like five bucks. Because once you start charging somebody or accepting some sort of compensation from them, that turns it into a commercial relationship, even if it's extremely unprofitable for you. So, you know, keeping it, you know, friends and family and, you know, not charging them would be step one because that puts it into a recreational use versus a commercial use setting. And then step two would be to have each one of those people sign a liability release for using your facility. Okay. So having them sign that liability release doesn't then make it a commercial transaction. That is correct that even if you have, let's say, a friend from work come over to ride one of your horses, you can have them sign a liability release, and in fact, you should do that. Okay. But one thing to remember is that uh, oftentimes it is not the person who actually got injured, you know, your friend that you trust. It might be the insurance company who paid their hospital bills. It might be their spouse who's always hated horses. You just never know. Yeah, and I've definitely heard of situations where people have had uh, their friends riding their horses, they get injured, go to the emergency room, and then they end up in a, a legal dispute um, that the friend, not of the friends making. So that isn't uncommon, unfortunately. Um, well, and this is a little shocking, but I do 3D eventing, and a friend of mine had a mishap not too long ago and had to go to the emergency room, and her healthcare provider, well, the, the healthcare insurer, actually sent her a form, and she sent me a copy of the form because, of course, it was written by lawyers and so normal people couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. But the essence of the form was asking whether anybody else besides her was responsible for her injuries, and what they were fishing for is somebody else to pay the bill. Yeah. Hmm. And so that's kind of the, the little known part about potential liability. It might not be the person who's actually on your property and comes after you. Yeah, yeah. Um, our next question is from Tracy in Florida, and Tracy wants to know who is liable for medical bills if your horse or her horse specifically steps on someone else's toes at a horse show? Ah, that's an excellent question, and that's another, it depends. <laughs> so when you, when you are a spectator at a horse show, you assume a certain amount of risk being around, you know, 1,500-pound animals. But you don't assume the risk that people handling those animals are going to be negligent. So let's say that you tie your horse to the trailer and you do it in a manner that is negligent and the horse escapes, runs all over the showgrounds, trampling people's property, stepping on people, running over people, you're probably going to have some liability there. But let's say that, you know, it's a crowded warm-up arena, everybody's jostling for position, you know, your horse accidentally steps on somebody who happens to be standing right next to the gate in this crush of people and horses, you probably would not have liability there. So if you are in that situation where you have your horse off property at a equine facility and your horse steps on someone and maybe it was your fault, something that you did accidentally, um, 
how can you protect yourself from that liability? Is there insurance that you can get that will cover you? Will your homeowner's insurance cover you in those instances? Or do you need specific horse-related insurance for those events? First, you want to talk to your homeowner's insurance agent. And you always want to make sure, especially if you're keeping any kind of livestock on your property, that your insurer knows about it. Because there may be, you know, special riders that you need. There may be exclusions from coverage that your insurance agent didn't think to tell you about because they didn't know that you had horses or llamas or whatever. So that's number one. So let's say that your homeowner's insurance, because the horse isn't kept on your property, doesn't cover you. And sometimes that's the case. Well, there's such a thing as an individual horse owner's liability policy, and they're really cheap. And not only are they really cheap, I mean, really cheap, we're talking like $100 a year. If you are a regular member of the U.S. Equestrian Federation, you get one of those policies free with your membership. So, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to have if you're not sure whether your homeowner's insurance is going to cover you. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't actively showing and I still kept up my membership, not only to support the association, but also because that's a nice little perk. Uh, along with that. Um, our next question is from uh, Judith in South Carolina, and she wants to know if her regular umbrella policy will cover her uh, as a farm owner against lawsuits. Well, I think that's another it depends situation. You know, it really depends on what Judith is doing on her farm. Is it a commercial operation? And, you know, is her umbrella policy a commercial policy or does she just have a general liability homeowner's policy and, you know, there are things happening on her farm that might be considered commercial activities? And, you know, Judith might say, oh, no, you know, I'm not making any money on the farm. But sometimes if you dig a little deeper, there are some gotchas. For example, if you are leasing out a horse and someone is either paying to maintain the horse or paying you a lease fee and they're coming out to your property, that would be considered a commercial activity, even though you're not making a profit on it, most likely. So in that case... So I would say Judith should talk to her insurance agent and make sure that her insurance agent knows exactly what Judith is doing on her farm and feels confident that the coverage that she has would pay the defender if she gets sued as a result of doing any of those things. Okay. And so those uh, umbrella policies are typically just added to your car and your homeowner's insurance to give coverage for like slip and falls and those sorts of things. Is that, that's been my understanding. I'm not sure if I understand that correctly, but. Well, you know, I think umbrella policy means a little different thing to different people. So I would say that umbrella policy isn't enough to tell me exactly what kind of policy she has. Okay. okay. Um, our next question is from Sandy in Wisconsin. And Sandy says, what if someone enters your property without permission, gets into the horse pasture, and is injured? What is your liability as the property and horse owner? So that is a really excellent question. So. And I love this question because it's kind of a kind of a law school exam type of question. So let's say let's say that Sandy just has her personal horses on her property. Well, 
you've got somebody who's a trespasser, there would have to be something in particular about Sandy's property to make it what's called an attractive nuisance. And what that means is things that typically draw trespassers. And some other examples are swimming pools. You know, that's why your insurance company, if you have a swimming pool, requires you to have a fence around it and a locked gate because you could be potentially liable if someone trespasses on your property and drowns in your swimming pool. So it's not out of the question to say that you might have potential liability. Let's say that your horse farm is located next to a daycare center and you have fences that children can easily penetrate and children, of course, attract the horses, which isn't a bad thing. But uh, but let's say, you know, that situation happens, you know, I think you might have some potential liability there, or at least you might have to engage in a lawsuit to find out whether you have liability, which is, of course, you know, always a losing proposition. You know, once uh, once you've been sued, you're going to have to pay or your insurer is. It's just a question of whether you're going to pay your lawyer, whether you're going to pay the other guy or both and when. So... I would say that if you have concerns about people trespassing on your property, the single best thing that you can do is put up electric fencing and make sure it's appropriately signed, you know, that it's, that it's hot. That most people will not mess with electric fences. They make great neighbors. <laughs> so I have talked to insurance or an insurance agent who talked about uh, mitigating risk and she recommended um, the horse safe fences plus gates on the property to keep people from being able to enter. Are are those the kind of things that can help you uh, defend against those kind of lawsuits if you have taken those measures to make your property more secure uh, rather than having, you know, an, an open fence um, that, a, that a child can crawl through? Yeah, I, I think that's right, that you want to make your property look unattractive to people who might just sort of stroll onto it. And, you know, it has the side bonus of making sure that your horses are contained, mm -hmm. that if, if you have horses on your property and they get loose and let's say they run out on the road and somebody hits them with a vehicle, you could be liable to the people involved in the accident. So, you know, that's, it's good to have good fences and good gates to both keep the horses in and keep people out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the my gate has definitely saved me uh, in the middle of the night when the horses have busted out <laughs> so and um, have been contained on my property. So it's always easier to catch a horse that's on your property and not running down the road. Um, and we do in my neighborhood. I have caught other people's horses, not my own, but it does it does seem to happen. Um, we have a follow-up question from the live audience. Uh, it's from a boarding facility owner. Uh, Deanna wants to know if an owner takes their horse off the boarding property, rides down the road, and an accident occurs between the horse and rider in a car, does the property owner where the horse lives have any liability in that situation? Well, that's, uh, Deanna, that's a good question. I would say probably not, and probably I can think of some unless circumstances. Let's say that you live down the street from, you know, Bureau of Land Management land where people can trail ride, and you advertise that on your website for your boarding facility, you know, just a short ride down the public road, 
et cetera, then, yeah, I think, you know, you could have some potential liability. Now, one way that you can try to mitigate that risk would be to have your boarders sign a contract that requires them to indemnify you, i.e. pay for the cost of your, of your defense, if anyone sues you, the boarding facility, as a result of something the boarder did or didn't do. We have another question from the live audience. Virginia says that she is giving a slightly dangerous horse to a trainer and asked her to sign a contract to not allow the horse to end up in a kill pen. Am I okay doing this, and will that agreement hold up? Well, you're certainly um, certainly smart to do it. You know, having a contract like that serves as a deterrent. And I think you'd have to be really specific about what kill pen means. And, you know, if I were going to define that, I would say, you know, sells at public auction for less than X dollars, perhaps. But let's say that uh, that you find out too late that the horse went to the kill pen, there probably wouldn't be a whole lot you could do. That you'd have to prove that, uh, that you suffered economic damages as a result of that. And I think that would be pretty difficult unless... Your contract had what's called a liquidated damages clause in it. Um, you know, that's that's also an interesting scenario that I get questions from people frequently because you know horses do have behavioral issues that are dangerous sometimes, and what one person is willing to take on might be you know a deal killer for other people. And people ask me, well, how do I protect myself when I'm either selling or giving away a horse like that? And my answer is to have a written contract, even if you're giving the horse away, where you fully disclose in writing what the horse does that's dangerous, and the person signing the contract agrees to assume the risks, you know, of taking on the horse with those problems. Let's say you have a horse that rears or flips over backwards or bucks. You know, those are all things that you're going to want to disclose. Um, Virginia has a follow-up question to your response on that, and she wants to know if having the contract notarized will help make it more enforceable. Well, the function of a notary is to verify the identities of the people who are signing the contract. And so if you're in a situation where you think someone later might be, well, that's my, my signature, I didn't sign this contract, then yes, have it notarized. But most horse transactions, I don't think it's necessary to have contracts notarized. Um, so I want to go back to that question of a horse having a behavioral issue when you're selling it, because I think it's a, an, an interesting question. Because one horse's behavior I might see as normal, where someone purchasing that horse may view the same kind of behavior as dangerous. What do you need to disclose when you're selling a horse? If it's ever bucked ever, I mean, if you've owned the horse since it was a weanling, you have probably have known that it when it's bucked. Um, how do you protect yourself when you're selling the horse from accusations that you've sold a dangerous horse or didn't disclose a behavioral issue? Well, so I think here are some things that I think are nearly automatic legal gotchas if you don't disclose them. Let's say the horse seriously injured somebody. You know, they landed in the hospital 
And, you know, it was something that was either clearly the horse's fault or probably the horse's fault. You know, I think things like that should be disclosed because let's say the horse injures somebody else down the line and it comes out that, you know, the horse had, you know, been involved in this incident where somebody had a traumatic brain injury in the past, let's say, that that's going to look really bad for your case. That, you know, it's going to look like this is a dangerous horse and you knew about it and didn't disclose it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you're in doubt, disclose it. And, you know, I have clients that sell horses for a living and, you know, they're like, well, boy, you know, I'm not sure about that, Rachel, because, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to run off potential buyers. And I'm like, no, wait and see what happens. Because the more you disclose, the more honest it makes you look. And so, you know, it gives the buyer confidence that they know what they're buying. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it provides you, the seller, with some protection that lameness is a good one. That, you know, obviously that's not necessarily a dangerous condition, but, you know, horses can and often do go lame. And sometimes lamenesses that happened in the past can recur in the future. And so if you've had a horse that, you know, has had some type of lameness, even if it's completely resolved, you're a lot better off disclosing it. Because let's say that the horse has that lameness later, you know, the buyer can't come back to you and say, well, you didn't tell me. And at the same time, you know, that will inform the buyer's purchase that, you know, they can tell the pre-purchase exam that that, and they should get a pre-purchase exam. But, uh, you know, I think more disclosure is better in terms of making sure that the transaction doesn't go south for either party. So when it comes to to medical issues or lameness kind of situations, uh, can the purchaser get the horse's medical records? I know in humans we have HIPAA that protects information um, from being shared by your uh, by your doctors or your healthcare professionals. Does the same apply with horses? So here's something really interesting, at least in the states where I practice. Veterinary records belong, by law, to the person who ordered and paid for the treatment, who may or may not be the actual owner of the animal. Let's say you're leasing a horse and you got the vet care and paid for the vet care. You own the vet records. And what that means is that the vet, and this, again, is limited to the states where I practice, but the vet can't release those records or any information about them to anybody other than you without your advanced permission. So let's say you're looking at a horse to buy. It's a good idea to ask the seller who their veterinarians are, and veterinarians plural, because oftentimes people will have more than one, but maybe they'll have the, the local country vet who comes out and does vaccines for them, and then they have the lameness vet that they see when they've got a problem. So you want to make sure that uh, you try and find out the universe of people that, you know, that are veterinarians for the seller and then ask them if they will release the veterinary records for their horse that they're selling. And if they won't, that's a giant red flag. Okay. We have another question from our live audience. Kelly says she's having difficulty finding an insurer who will cover an equine business or or on her home property. She said her current insurer will drop her if she starts a boarding facility. Do you have any suggestions on finding insurance companies who will cover 
uh, commercial operations? I do. And generally, you know, I think for equine related businesses, you need an insurance agent who, if not completely specializes in that area, is very familiar with the carriers and types of coverage that are available. And if you go to our website, equinelegalsolutions.com, there's a section about insurance. And under that are different types of insurance that apply to equine facilities and some agents that we recommend. Uh, Colleen is in New Jersey, and she wants to know if uh, liability releases need to be re-signed every year from existing clients, and how long is a signed liability release good for? Colleen, that's a great question. The liability releases, unless they say that they expire, are what's called evergreen, which means you sign them once and you're done. So something I suggest to my clients is that they may want to scan a copy of those liability releases and keep them on file in addition to whatever paper copies they might have. And that way, you know, they have all their liability releases in one place, and if they need them, they can pull them out. Because, you know, oftentimes as, as horse owners, you know, we tend to be horse people first and business people maybe later. <laughs> so, you know, it's a good business practice to be able to put your hand on the liability releases if you need them. Now, the reason to have a liability release re-signed is if you have it updated. So, one thing that I would always suggest doing in equine business context, you know, whether it's training or boarding, that you don't want to necessarily make the contract specific to the horse because then you'll have to get it re-signed every time they get a new horse or bring another horse to your facility. And of course, most people forget to do that. And mm -hmm. so then there's a question about whether the old contract that you signed you know, for horse number one applies to the situation you have for horse number two. And you know, it's a lot safer to just have you know, the, the contract and then you can always include in an attachment you know, the details about the particular horses. So if you are someone who has kids on your property, uh, they're either boarding their horses or they are taking riding lessons on your facility and you have a signed liability uh, release from their parents, if they turn 18, do you need to get one from, from the kid who's now an adult? Um, or does the one from the parents still apply? Absolutely, on getting one from the newly uh, newly fledged adult. Mm -hmm. That's a little known fact about liability releases and minors, and that's people under 18, is that parents cannot waive their children's rights. No one can waive the child's rights. The child can't waive their rights. The parents can't waive their rights. So even if a parent signs a liability release on behalf of the child, the child would still have a potential legal cause of action. And here's another gotcha that let's say that the child gets injured when they're seven. Well, the statute of limitations on whatever claim they might have is told or paused until the child turns 18. So over a decade later, you know, the stable, if they're still in business, you know, has long forgotten about whatever happened to the seven-year-old and shazam, you know, they could be on the wrong end of a lawsuit. So 
you know, the best things that you can do to prevent yourself, prevent that kind of situation is number one, to have really good liability insurance that'll pay for your defense because you can't successfully disclaim all your liability when it comes to minors. And number two, to have the parent or guardian sign what's basically an indemnification agreement that says that if the child or anyone else on behalf of the child brings a suit against you, the parent will pay to defend you. And, you know, while, you know, the parent might not have deep pockets and, well, parents, of course, kids usually don't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, if, if they had deep pockets, they're, they're being rapidly emptied. But, uh, but uh, it does serve as, as a deterrent to the child bringing a lawsuit. Like if the, if the child brings a lawsuit and it's going to adversely affect their beloved parent, they're probably not going to do it. We have a question from our live audience about breeding contracts. Christy wants to know when considering a stallion breeding contract, is it appropriate for the mare owner to ask the stallion owner provide a breeding soundness uh, clause to the contract? Can she ask them to add that to the contract? She says she's dealt with two stallions this past season who were not viable and she wasted thousands of dollars and lots of time trying to get her mares pregnant. Um, can you ask to have changes made to the contracts? Certainly you can ask. And you know, I'm thinking as a practical matter that maybe what you really want, even before you enter into a breeding contract, is a veterinary report of a breeding soundness exam, you know, that talks about mobility and numbers and viability so that you know, you know, it's essentially, especially, you know, with semen contracts, you know, what you're buying is semen. And so you want to make sure that the quality of that semen is sufficient to meet your needs. And so I think in that situation, and I would explain it just like that to the stallion owner that, you know, you've had you know, two situations in a row now where you were trying to inseminate a mare and the semen wasn't good. And so, you know, you want a quality report before you sign up. We have another question from our live audience. Monica wants to know what signs should you post on your property to reduce your liability? Number one is if you live in a state that has an equine activity statute, and by that I mean there are statutes out there that try to limit the liability of horse owners and horse facilities for things that are ordinary horse behavior. If you live in one of those states, and you most likely do because I think last count it's like 47 or 48 of the states had them, you will want to look at that equine activity statute and whether they require you to have any specific signage. And some do, some don't. So you want to check that out. Certainly, I think no trespassing signs are one of the best liability protections out there because if someone is trespassing on your property in an area that's clearly marked, you're going to be less likely to have liability. And that goes for properties that are open or sort of open to the public, like let's say show arenas and boarding facilities, if you have areas of the property that are clearly designated as employees only and that sort of thing, and you make an effort to segregate those parts of the property, you're going to be a lot less liable if something happens when someone has clearly ignored those signs and entered that part of the property. Other signs that you want to make sure you have 
if you have a dog that might bite somebody, absolutely you want to post beware of dogs all over the place. Same thing if you have a horse that, you know, let's say you're in a boarding facility and you have a horse that if somebody sticks their fingers in his stall, he's going to bite them. You want to warn people. And, you know, people always ask me, they're like, well, Rachel, you know, isn't that like an admission that I know that the dog or horse is dangerous? And you know, the answer is no. I mean, you already know that the dog or horse is probably going to bite somebody. So putting up signs is certainly going to do more good than harm because it's going to put people on notice and hopefully avoid those incidents. And if they choose to ignore the sign and stick their fingers in the horse's stall, you know, that's assumption of the risk. Um, our next question is from Sue in Ohio, and Sue wants to know if first right of refusal clauses have any legal standing in a horse sales contract. They do, but here's the kicker, that you need to be able to find out about the pending sale in time to prevent it from happening if someone is violating your right of first refusal. Otherwise, in many states, what will happen is someone who buys the horse didn't know about the right of first refusal, and, you know, they buy the horse for, you know, a decent price, and they go on with their lives, you're probably not going to be able to get the horse back from that person. So, you know, what I recommend with rights of first refusal is to put some teeth in those clauses by putting a liquidated damages provision in there that says, hey, you know, if you don't honor this right of first refusal, you're going to owe me X number of dollars. And that does two things. You know, it, it discourages people from doing it in the first place. And then if they do do it, it gives you some recourse. Okay. Um, Pam in Florida wants to know what the li what liabilities could possibly be associated with paying an underage person to ride your horses on your own private property. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so in addition to what we've already talked about with minors not being able to waive and no one else like parents or guardians being able to waive those minors' rights, actually paying minors to do something on your property is another category altogether because essentially it makes them employees. So if they get hurt while they're on your property and you don't have workers' compensation insurance, you know, depending on what state you live in, that could be a gigantic problem for you. And, you know, you would have to comply with all the wage and hour laws. And, you know, I'm old enough. I grew up in an era where, you know, neighbors would uh, would pay local kids to clean stalls and things like that. And I guarantee it wasn't minimum wage and that they didn't comply with tax withholding and so on. And they definitely didn't have workers' comp insurance. But, you know, I think that's much more of a risk now that, unfortunately, we live in a society where if something happens, the first question always seems to be, well, whose fault is it? And no one ever seems to think, well, gee, maybe it was my fault. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, they're always looking for somebody to blame, somebody else to be responsible. And, you know, the unfortunate part of that is, you know, it's really made situations like what Pam is talking about unduly risky, you know, more risk than reward. 
Beth is in Texas and wants to know if incorporating your business will protect your personal property against a liability judgment. Potentially. That let's say you incorporate your equine business, there are a couple of things that you need to do. You have to preserve the corporate separateness of that business from your own personal affairs. So number one, you want to incorporate it. Number two, the business needs to have some assets. It doesn't have to own all of the assets, but it has to be you know, some sort of reasonable asset. And one asset, for example, would be you know, a lease on the part of the property that the business does business on. You might uh, either own or lease you know, farm equipment. You might own a couple of horses. And by you, I mean the business. Um, another thing that's vitally important is that you have the business corporate name on all of your contracts, all of your marketing materials, including your website and social media, so that people are completely aware or should be that you are a business, a corporation, or a limited liability company as the case may be. And for certain, you want to have a separate bank account for the business and all of the payments that you receive in connection with your business go into that account and all the expenses for the business come out of that account and you never pay for or receive anything personal through that account. So most of those things aren't too difficult to do. It just takes a little bit of discipline. Um, Monica in our live audience wants to know about starting a horse rescue. She said, what kind of waiver and wording should they have for volunteers in the organization? Oh, boy. Well, that, I think, you know, would be sort of a customized situation where she would want to sit down with a local attorney who knows horses very well and, you know, and also, you know, is a, is a talented transactional attorney to talk about, you know, what kind of risks people are taking on, you know, what the volunteers are going to be doing. Are they just cleaning stalls without anybody in there? Or are they training, you know, or retraining, you know, horses with behavior problems? You know, I think that whatever liability release she had for volunteers, and again, I think you want to make sure all your volunteers are adults, that you would want to contemplate, you know, what it is that they're doing and them to agree to assume the risks of doing those things. Which brings me to a point about liability releases. So liability releases, waivers, and hold harmless are synonyms. They all mean the same thing. And the purpose of those documents is to get somebody to understand what the risks are of what they're about to do and agree to accept those risks. You know, whether it's skydiving, horseback riding, skiing, whatever it is, the more specific that you can be about what the risks are, the more likely it is that if something happened, it would have been on your list. So, you know, liability releases that say, you know, horses are dangerous, I agree to accept the risk, are not going to be as protective as ones that give a laundry list of all the bad things that horses tend to do. So, she mentions uh, wanting to run a rescue, and not all rescues are set up as nonprofits. If you're not a nonprofit, can you have volunteer laborers? That is a really good question. So I think it probably depends on what state you're in, but I'm aware of a case involving a winery that had people who were volunteers 
come out and help with the harvest, well, it turned out that the state thought they were violating the wage and hour laws. So, you know, I think that you would want to consult with your local attorney about what you're planning to do and make sure there aren't any nasty gotchas like that. We have another question from our live audience. Crystal wants to know if a boarder brings a friend to the property and the friend doesn't ride but is injured, is the facility held responsible? Potentially. It depends on how the friend got injured and whether, you know, the boarding stable, you know, had any responsibility for that. That absolutely, and I know this is really hard to control when you've got a boarding facility that's open all the time, but you really want to have visitors, riding or not, sign a liability release. And if you're pretty strict about it, your boarders are actually going to help you enforce it. You want to make sure the liability release forms are in an easily accessible place and that you know they're accompanied by clipboards and pens tied to the wall, that sort of thing. A lot of people find those little boxes that real estate agents put on signs with the flyers for the property. Those are really useful for liability release stuff. And, you know, you have those in a central location, you know, right outside the barn office, you know, right inside the front door and, you know, be strict about enforcing that because sure as you're born, the person who gets injured is going to be the person who hasn't signed the liability release yet. Mm -hmm. I have been to a farm where uh, the barn manager met me at my pickup with a clipboard with a liability release form. So I rolled down the window, signed it. <laughs> she was very on top of it. Um, but that was their standard, and all of their boarders knew that, too. That was what was expected, is that people immediately sign the liability form before doing anything on the property. So um, anyway, um, I have a question from Deanna in our live audience. She said she adopted a horse from a rescue, and the adoption contract states that the rescue has first right to buy the horse back should it be sold. The rescue is not operational anymore, so how binding is that contract? Well, probably not very. <laughs> that, uh, that They would have had to assign whatever rights they had in that contract to whatever successors of that organization, you know, are. And as a practical matter, you know, once the organization has disbanded, you know, who's going to be in a position to try and enforce its rights? Probably nobody. Uh-huh. So, so if there's no one to give notice to of the right of first refusal, let's say you're thinking about selling the horse and you look at the right of first refusal clause and says you have to give them 14 days notice, but there's no forwarding address. There's, you know, no corporate entity exists anymore. They don't have a place of business anymore. How are you going to notify them? I think you'd have to look to the contract to see, you know, if there's a notice provision in there and it says where notices must be sent to. And, you know, if it's got an address in there, even if you know it's probably not good anymore, it probably makes sense to at least try to, you know, send them notice and then it'll come back to you saying, you know, address the unknown or whatever, and then you have proof you tried. I've seen uh, adoption contracts that have outlined, say, if you adopt a mayor, that you are not allowed to breed the mayor, or contracts that have made stipulations on how you can use the horse that you've adopted. Are those enforceable? Can someone that you've purchased a horse from or adopted a horse from dictate how you use that animal? I think those contracts are really difficult to enforce. That for one thing, you know, in order to have some kind of cause of action for breach of contract, 
an organization trying to enforce it would have to show that they've suffered some kind of economic damage. I think that would be really difficult in terms of, let's say you have a mirror and you breed it. Well, how, how has the rescue organization been damaged economically by that? I think that would be an uphill battle. You know, I think what those contracts do most of the time is just serve as a deterrent. Mm-hmm. We have a question from Sharon in New York, and she wants to know, actually this was a very popular question, Rachel, she wants to know, what is a barn manager's recourse when a boarder does not pay for board? Oh, boy. Well, it depends on what state you live in. But in general, you want to look first to your boarding contract. What does it say? You know, you want to try and my general advice about non-paying boarders is you want to get them and their horse off the property and out of that stall and stop eating you out of house and home on your tab as soon as possible. And you can always follow up later and hopefully it hasn't gotten to the point where you're out of small claims court, but you can always bring a claim for the back board after they're gone. But your priority is to get them gone. And you want to address it immediately. You have a boarder that hasn't paid their board and board is due on the first, it's the fifth. Definitely send them an email, pick up the phone, keep track of your efforts that you want to know right away if somebody's going to be a deadbeat. You know, that it's it's the fifth. Well, you don't want to find out by the fifth of next month that they now owe you two months board. You want to be really proactive to try and limit your liability because not only is that horse occupying a space that the person who actually pays their bills could be occupying, but most of the time you know, you're paying for feed and bedding with, you know, questionable whether you're ever going to get paid for it. Um, since this was such a popular question, we had lots of boarding facility owners asking about how to get payment or what to do with a horse that has maybe been abandoned at their boarding facility. What uh, other recommendations do you have for those barn owners to help protect themselves from these situations where, where, as you said, you have a deadbeat border? Well, these situations are really difficult because at least in the states where I practice, the livestock lien laws were written during the time of cattle rustlers when it costs a lot more. The animals were worth far more than it costs to keep them. In most of our deadbeat border situations, it's just the opposite. The horse has no value at all. It's a liability, you know, with four legs and a tail (laughs) that it does nothing but eat and use bedding and has no market value. And yet, you know, here it is on your property this person isn't paying the bill, and sometimes you can't even get a hold of them. Is the horse legally abandoned? Well, I can only speak to the states where I'm licensed, but at least in those states, the answer is no, because you know who the horse belongs to. And it's on private property. You know, it's not the same situation as it would be if, let's say, someone tied a horse to parking near downtown, or you wake up one morning and find an extra horse in your pasture and you have no idea where it came from. You know, those are, you know, animal abandonment types of situations where you would call animal control. But but the deadbeat border situation is so difficult because, you know, yes, you know, you could go through this drawn out 
you know, statutory process, at least in the states where I practice, to be able to sell the horse to satisfy the debt, you know, it usually has to be sold at public auction, where, of course, you know, if it's any kind of decent horse, probably wouldn't bring, you know, anywhere near as much as it would in a private sale. And, you know, it takes months to get through that process and be able to get the court order that you need to be able to sell the horse. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, the horse will, you know, bring nothing, you know, to satisfy the debt. So it's it's really a lose-lose situation for the boarding stable unless the horse actually has some recognizable market value. And in most of those cases, you know, the owners of those horses tend to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the, the retired horse, it's the, you know, the yearling stud colt with no training, you know, it's it's always a horse that's, that's a tough giveaway, much less sell, usually. So that brings me to, to another question that, you know, I probably give at least one consultation a week on this topic. And, you know, boarding stable owners ask me, and rightfully so, they're like, okay, Rachel, you know, I understand, you know, that, you know, there's this process that I have to go through, et cetera. You know, but the reality is, you know, horse eating me out of house and home, he's worth no money. You know, what could happen to me if I just give him away or sell him to somebody for a dollar? And the answer is that you could be potentially liable to the horse owner for what's called conversion, which is basically the civil form of theft. But your potential liability would be limited to whatever the fair market value of the horse was at the time you sold it or gave it away. And you'd be able to offset that by how much they owe you. So while I certainly can't give anyone legal advice to give away or sell a horse that belongs to a deadbeat border that you know you're never going to get paid, you know, the reality is it does happen and you just have to balance the risks. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed at the people that, you know, they couldn't be bothered to return the boarding stables, phone calls, emails, text messages, you know, they're like a year and two months behind in their board. But boy, the second you give Dobbin away, you know, here they are screaming up your driveway, you know, claiming you stole their horse, you know, and somehow they managed to scrape up the money to, you know, hire a lawyer to sue you. You know, it's it's not out of the question. I've certainly seen it happen. Hmm. Um, our next question is from Ellen Catherine, um, and she says she boards her horses at a property where other horses have had EPM. The horse knew that horses on the property had had EPM, but failed to inform me of that. I want to sue. Is this suit viable? So who knew that the that the, the property had so EPM? The, the vet knew that uh, that horses at the property had had EPM. So presumably that's Ellen Catherine's vet. Yes. So, so that brings us back to the question that we had earlier about who owns the vet records and information in them. And I would say that there's a really good chance that the vet might not be able to disclose that information without violating the state law protecting the confidentiality of those records and seeing who owns them. So, you know, again, I can only comment on the states where I'm licensed, but even if the vet wanted to warn people, it might be difficult for him or her to do that. Now, beyond that, you know, I think there's the issue of 
and you know, I think this is a, a veterinary medical question, and I'm certainly not a veterinarian, but my question to my veterinarian would be, you know, is EPM something, you know, that that lives in the soil, like say Streptococcus equi, or is it something that's transmitted in other ways. You know, my understanding is that EPM is most often transmitted by animals, including, you know, barn cats, possums, raccoons, things like that. And those animals, as, as we all know, don't respect property lines. So, okay. you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, whatever animal infected the horse with EPM or caused the infection to occur you know, might not even reside on the property. So, you know, I think I think that's that's really iffy. Now, I think a better question might be, you know, let's say you go to a boarding facility, you know, where there've been lots of instances of EPM, and the boarding facility doesn't tell you anything about it. You know, I think that's more problematic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it would be the the property owner that would need to share that with you, not your vet. I think that's right. Okay. So, and I think, you know, what, what else the property owner would, would of course, want to do is to consult with their own veterinarian about, you know, what are the risks to new horses coming in? And is this something I need to talk to people about? Is there anything that we can do to mitigate that risk? You know, I think that makes good business sense in, in addition to being, you know, a decent human being. So we have, for those of you who are listening live, we've shared a link to our topics page on EPM. If you're interested in more information about the disease and how it's spread, uh, you can click on that link and see all of the resources that we have on thehorse.com or, of course, uh, consult with your veterinarian to give you information on that disease and uh, and how it is spread. Uh, our next question is from Karen in Ohio, and she says, if you were sold a horse with a permanent physical disability that makes it unrideable, but you did not find this out until you took possession of the horse, what recourse do you have? Well, Karen, if you bought the horse and the seller knew about the problem and didn't disclose it or actively covered up the problem, then absolutely they could be on the hook and potentially for fraud, which at least in the states where I practice often carries attorney's fees with it so but proving that the seller knew about it is usually the sticky wicket that they had and how you do that you usually find it after the fact that you know you have to sue them in order to have subpoena power and then you have to find out who the veterinarians are and then you subpoena the records from the veterinarian so you know I saw a case not too long ago where the horse had literally been treated for lameness over a four-year period and, you know, intermittent significant lameness that was completely unresolved and the sellers didn't disclose it. You know, that's a situation where you probably have some recourse. But, you know, I always have a conversation with my clients and potential clients about, well, even if you have a super meritorious legal case, you know, there's no such thing as a slam dunk. It's always possible to lose. And even more importantly, you have to look at it from an economic perspective that, you know, do you want to throw good money after bad with the hope of being able to recover it? And, 
you know, a lot of times that depends on how much you spent for the horse. You know, if it's a $2,500 horse, maybe you're better off not pursuing it or potentially taking the people to small claims court. Um, we have just about one minute left, um, and I have um, possibly two questions to get to you before we're done. Um, one is from Claudia in Canada, and she said she's a certified riding coach and an equine professional. When she goes out for a recreational ride, non-paid with friends or students, is she liable for their safety? I don't think so, Claudia, unless you're giving them instruction, which it sounds like you're not, or you know you do something that puts them in danger. I don't think that you would have any more liability as a professional in a social setting than you would, you know, as an average horse owner. Okay. Uh, Jennifer is in our live audience, and she is house sitting for a friend and taking care of her horses and other critters. She's getting paid for that. Um, is she liable if anything goes wrong, or is her friend liable for her if something goes wrong? Potentially on both sides. So I can speak from my own personal perspective, and that's when I hire a ranch that are, you know, they are independent contractor. That it's somebody that does work for me. They ranch it for other people, and you know, they clearly have, you know, other clients. So that makes them an independent contractor, which probably means that you're not going to have a problem with workers' compensation, with payroll withholding, those kinds of things. I think where you might have a situation of potential liability is, let's say one of your horses has some kind of dangerous habit, and you know about it, and you don't tell the pet sitter, and the pet sitter gets clobbered with results. That's probably not something that they assume the risks of. You know, they would, I think, be doomed to deemed to accept the ordinary risks involved in ranch sitting, which, as we all know, are myriad. <laughs> but, uh, but if there was something in particular that that you knew about and you didn't tell the ranch sitter, and they get seriously injured as a result, you know, I can understand where they might feel like you have some liability and be uh, inclined to sue you. Now, if you're a rancher. And something bad happens. I mean, obviously, you know, we can't prevent bad things from happening sometimes. I think you would have to have done something that was negligent or failed to do something that you should have done that caused the problem. Like, for example, let's say that one of your customers has a whole barn full of special needs horses that have special diets and, you know, they have very specific instructions and, you, the ranch sitter, fail to follow the instructions or you get them mixed up and feed the wrong feed to the wrong horse and the result is somebody colics, well, you might be on the hook for the vet bill for that. Okay. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. Um, I want to thank Attorney Rachel Cosmo-McCart for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, and thanks for all of your great answers. And we had a ton more that we could have covered tonight, and we had a, a large audience. So thank you for everyone who has been with us for the past hour. I want to 
thank everyone who submitted questions live and ahead of time. I hope you can join us next month when we're discussing feeding your horses through the winter months. Uh, I have one myself that needs a couple more pounds before it gets chilly. Until then, from all of us at the horse, I hope you have a great night.